Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. Would you do me a favor when you're done listening? Would you subscribe, rate and review the podcast? We need your reviews to take us to the top. Thanks. Now let's get to it. This week, the focus is transitions of power. America has a president-elect, but the transition has yet to begin because President Donald Trump has refused to concede. When does President Donald Trump's actions become criminal? Possibly not until noon on January 20th. Once Joe Biden is sworn in, he is an interloper in the White House. The peaceful transitions of power. What's tradition versus law? We dig in with an expert. Then the Pennsylvania suburbs chose Joe Biden, but... Democrats got killed down ballot. And the lower you went, the worse it was for us. Strategist debriefs on what they got right and wrong. All of this and more. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the transition of power, or shall we say not? U.S. news organizations project that former Vice President Joe Biden has received a total of 306 electoral college votes, more than the 270 needed to become president-elect. Yet President Donald Trump has refused to concede. His party supports him and his administration has halted governmental transition of power. So what's the impact? Here to discuss this flashpoint is Dr. Claire Finkelstein, the UPenn Law Professor and Director of the Center of Ethics and the Rule of Law. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks for having me, Sherry. Our American democracy, we shift power every four to eight years at the very top. We typically have a peaceful transition. Can you take a moment to describe how it normally works and why this type of transition is so necessary. One of the most important things that happens after an election is that one side or the other concedes, the losing party concedes. And the concession is really the hallmark and the stamp, if you will, of the peaceful transition of power. It's how we know that peaceful transition is going to occur. And then we see usually a very high degree of cooperation between the former administration and the, and the incoming administration, the outgoing and the incoming administration. Uh, for example, there's a um, very nice tradition of the former or the outgoing president leaving a letter mm-hmm. on the desk in the Oval Office for the incoming president. It's not actually a tradition of very long standing, but Uh, sort of a welcome letter. And the outgoing president sitting down and having a a conversation with the incoming president, just as Barack Obama did with Donald Trump. Now, when elections are contested, it's usually not like this. It's usually because there is a very, very close election, because there's some legal issue for a court to decide, but not usually when the votes are this clear. Now that Arizona has been declared, Joe Biden has uh, over 300 elect- votes in the Electoral College. He is you know, massively ahead in the popular vote. And the instances of fraud that have been decried by the outgoing administration uh, have not stood up at all. There have been numerous court cases filed And those court cases have not turned up anything except for sort of minor issues around the edges that would not really um, 
couldn't possibly make a difference to the outcome, uh, to the outcome. But we still have an administration that is refusing to recognize the results of the election, is refusing to pass through phone calls, State Department refusing to pass through phone calls to Joe Biden and a secretary of state who was talking about a second Trump term. Yeah, and and that was a scary moment. Can we talk about the concession, this failure to concede? What are the real world implications? And you just started naming some of the things that come with failure to concede or refusal to concede, but are there real world consequences to, to these days ticking off where that transition doesn't even begin? Yes, there are real world consequences. So for example, in addition to refusing to pass phone calls through from world leaders to Joe Biden and the State Department's insistence that there's going to be another Trump administration, the GSA, the organization that allows funds to be released for the transition team, is withholding those funds so that they are not able to start doing the very hard work of putting together a new administration. They're, they're doing what they can, I suppose, on the sidelines, but they need to be able to get into their offices and, and, uh, and get their funds for what is really a massive operation, which is setting up a transition team and, and really getting ready in a very short period of time to handle this entire government apparatus. Uh, in a transition, as I understand it, every day is critical. They need every moment they have to get up and running. And given that they are still having to to fight the election battle and still dealing with extraordinary hostility on the part of the Trump administration and refusal to cooperate in handing off to the next administration, it's really going to hobble the efforts of the new administration to get their government up and running. Does it put our country in jeopardy? I think it does. And I've been very uh, concerned about the national potential national security implications of having a situation in which we have a, a government that isn't able to, uh, to function fully, in which uh, security um, discussions are not happening between the administration, uh, in which uh, Joe Biden uh, may not be getting his security briefings, uh, and in which the administration is itself posing a threat to the nation because they are risking the peaceful transition of power. Yeah, because we we had, a, a, we can't forget that in 2000, uh, the dispute between um, George W. Bush, Al Gore, we had 9-11 just a few months later. And some people say it was because of blackouts that happened because of the delay of the transition. Of course, look at that battle where it was much, much closer uh, than the current one, uh, where the decision uh, regarding the election came down to a couple of counties in Florida in one state. Here we have contestation on the part of the Trump administration across many states. And even though it's quite impossible on the basis of the numbers, even if Pennsylvania were to be reversed, that would not do it for Donald Trump. And so to hold up the transition of power when the results of the election are this clear poses a danger both with regard to foreign adversaries, but also at home. 
because yeah. the degree to which this country has been divided, the degree of internal unrest, the polarization of this nation uh, has been dangerous for our efforts in multiple respects, uh, not least of them the ability of the country to move forward to get the pandemic under control, because yeah. Donald Trump is stirring up his supporters to think that restrictions based on the pandemic are taking away their freedom. So we have a situation in which we have had violence in the streets. We have had, uh, you know, situations going back to, to Charlottesville, where the president is really trying to stir up um, racial hatred in this country. And he's on a path to continue stirring up divisiveness and polarization when what he really needs to be doing is saying, I can see the results of the election. I'm not happy about it. But now my supporters need to throw their weight behind the new administration uh, to heal the divisions in this country and to make sure that the new administration can be successful. Now, it, it seems like a lot of this uh, is sort of, um, you know, put on Donald Trump, the President Donald Trump, to concede. Is there anything that can force him to do this? Yes, there, there are a few things. And, and as usual, what we have is recalcitrance and sort of near insanity on the part of Donald Trump, but he is surrounded by enablers who allow him to continue on the destructive path that he's on. So Mitch McConnell, who at first seemed to be accepting the results of the election, has dug in his heels again. You know, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, these are the folks, you know, his cabinet should be going to him and the Republicans in the Senate should be going to him the way they did, by the way, with Nixon and told Nixon, guess what? It's time to stand down or you're going to be removed. They should be going to him and telling him for the good of the country, you are not going to win this and you are damaging the country with every passing day that you continue to hold out. Is there a point that your goodwill in doing that becomes this must be done? Is there a line in the sand that no matter how you feel about it, or if you have your own personal reasons for supporting someone who is clearly breaking tradition, but it becomes a, we have no choice at this point. I don't know. Donald Trump has been willing to defy all of the traditions that we have that, that sustain and support the rule of law in this country. And he is continuing to do that. And, and it's quite extraordinary, really, because right after the election was called by the networks, other than Rudy Giuliani, who was caught by surprise at that moment, uh, giving a press conference at Four Seasons Landscaping uh, on the outskirts of Philadelphia, you heard a number of Republican leaders starting to fall into line and starting to say, okay, you know, we, we accept the results. And then there was a kind of backtracking when, when President Trump made clear that he was not going to accept the results and, and his sons were apparently pressing him not to accept the results. Um, and so I think these leaders have to have to think long and hard about what they're doing to the country, but also why is it that Donald Trump has the hold on them that he has? Why are, is Mitch McConnell willing once again to jeopardize his place in history and to, to damage his reputation uh, and to damage his ability to work with the incoming president? Because that's something that he ought to want to do. What does Joe Biden, what does the president elect? What tools does he have in his toolbox to deal with this? 
Again, I don't think he has any other than possible diplomacy with members of Congress. And I don't know whether those conversations are taking place, whether or not he's talking to, to the Senate Majority Leader, whether or not he's talking to other Republicans uh, in Congress. He prides himself on his ability to work across the aisle, but this might not be the moment for that. If by December 14th, Donald Trump has not conceded, which is the moment that the, the Electoral College votes, if after that moment, Donald Trump still does not concede and is still continuing to throw up obstacles in the way of the Biden administration as they try to come into office. I think at that point, what Biden and Harris can do is start filing lawsuits. So this may, in the end, get decided by the courts and possibly before then, they can file a lawsuit to release the transition funds. They can't file a lawsuit to force Donald Trump to concede, but they may be able to proceed without such a concession. You have 70 plus million Americans who voted for President Donald Trump mm -hmm. who are following his signals. What does that mm -hmm. do if the president-elect and vice president-elect have to file a lawsuit just to start their, doing their job? It's not surprising that we have that with Donald Trump, right? He told us in advance he was not going to concede. And he told us in advance that if he didn't win the election, he was going to conclude that it was fraud. Uh, and he's doing exactly what he said he was going to do. But you're you're precisely right, Sherry, which is that it stirs up his base. And they are convinced, you know, 71 million Americans are probably convinced that there was fraud in this election. There is no evidence of fraud of any sort. Um, is our election system perfect? No. But uh, as we understand, this election was, in fact, in fact, better on the security front than others that we have had, and certainly better than the one that elected Donald Trump, where he uh, did not win by as large a margin as uh, Joe Biden is, has won. So uh, there is every reason for him to accept the results of this election. And if he will not accept the results, it will go forward anyway. And Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. A lot of people who are on the far left have been saying this is a coup. Is it a coup? Well, I don't think it's a coup that will get very far uh, if it is a coup. It is certainly an attempt to resist the transition of power as with every tool at their disposal. I think what has alarmed people um, is the last minute firing and replacing of individuals in the Pentagon and elsewhere in the administration that really makes it look as though Donald Trump is preparing to do something, possibly with the military. But I do not think he can be successful in that. And I also believe in the integrity of our military. Uh, it is really drilled into everyone who goes through military training that while you have a duty to obey orders, uh, you have a duty not to obey an illegal order yeah. so that if you are clear that it would be illegal for, for you as a member of the military to somehow dismantle the results of our election and to help Donald Trump resist the transition of power, I do not believe that members of our military will support that. And military leaders have been very clear that they are not uh, about to support that. Got to ask you, when does President Donald Trump's actions become criminal? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, of course, he's already under investigation for a number of criminal matters by but the Manhattan District Transition. Attorney. 
But with regard to the to the transition, it's really a very good question. I mean, possibly, depending on how you interpret his Article Two authority, possibly not until noon on January twentieth. At that point, once Joe Biden is sworn in, he is an interloper in the White House. He is no longer permitted to remain on the premises, and I have no doubt that the Secret Service would remove him and remove other other members of the administration if they do not leave peacefully. But the trouble is that you know the powers that he is using and possibly instigating the Attorney General Bill Barr and others in the administration and the and the sort of Pompeo talking points. None of that really falls into the realm of of criminal because it's an exercise of very broad executive powers that presidents have. I do think that following this transition, there will be soul searching and, and possible legislation on the part of Congress to deal with a situation like this before. We've just never had it. You're the director of the Center of Ethics and Rule of Law. Just a philosophical question here. Does the rule of law exist if everybody decides not to follow it? Because you have a situation here where literally half uh, of the folks who vote, half of the government leaders here are refusing to follow the rules that we have in place. Does it sort of blow out our ability to, you know, enforce them if you just, if you all get together and say, we're not going to do it? Sure, you're asking a wonderful question because what it really allows us to realize is that the rule of law has been maintained in this country for so many years and the foundations of our democracy, not just by laws that have very clear um answers. How do we follow this law? What's a violation of this law? But also by the softer traditions and norms. And the concession speech, for example, is a perfect instance of that because it's the marker of how we transition power peacefully from one administration to another, even in the face of great contestation. Um, But it is just a tradition. It's a soft tradition. It's not a law. So um, given uh, first of all, the extremely broad powers that presidents now have. And I think that presidential power has expanded more and more over the years. And the ideas about what Article 2 allows presidents to do, which Donald Trump has has talked, has bragged about before, to some extent he's right, they're, they're very, very broad powers for presidents these days. So much of this lies in tradition and norms. Now, I think that will start to change. I I am hoping that in the next administration, members of Congress will think hard about the guardrails that we put around our executive branch and really will start to think about Donald Trump and his administration are maybe authoritarian, maybe have authoritarian leanings, but they're not so competent that they're able to carry it off. They're still the guys booking the Four Seasons landscaping rather than the Four Seasons Hotel in Philadelphia. Um, But the next authoritarian who comes along uh, may be much more effective at really dismantling the guardrails of our democracy. While no president wants to reduce his own power, what would be a real mark and a legacy for Joe Biden is if he and the vice president, Kamala Harris, take a look at at executive authority and take a look at presidential authority and say, 
we have to be the ones to lead the push to put back the guardrails on executive authority so that this can't happen again. People are already rumors swirling that President Donald Trump may throw his hat in the ring again in four years. You know, most people, we haven't seen that happen in, in recent history. Could this go down? Well, it is, it is not impossible. And I think, therefore, there has to be accountability for what he has done to our institutions. There has to be accountability for any legal violations. Uh, I do believe the Manhattan DA, uh, Cyrus Vance, will continue with his investigations. And uh, it's really important that we learn the truth about what Donald Trump has been doing with his finances, uh, possible campaign finance violations. Uh, he may find himself in quite a serious uh, legal pickle. But I also think that basic aspects of our executive branch, such as the requirement that presidents reveal their tax returns, such as the requirement that presidents divest from their businesses, that has to be put into law. Mm -hmm. We have to stop believing that presidents are going to do that voluntarily, because especially in the wake of Donald Trump, he will have set new norms by refusing the transparency that the American people are owed. And he will have established traditions of refusal and power, consolidation of power around him and interfering with congressional subpoenas, telling his cabinet ministers or former cabinet ministers to defy Congress, not feeling that he or anyone else in his administration has a responsibility to come clean with their activities and provide Congress with the information that they're requesting, that all of that will have set new norms. And yeah. so I do hope that with the new administration and a new Congress, there will be a push to try to codify some of those transparency rules and cooperation rules that our democracy really has relied on for many years, only relied on in a, in a softer, more normative way rather than in a, with legal hard legal edges to it. Lots of folks on pens and needles. We, we set a key date is December 14th when the votes have been certified and the electors cast. And then January 20th, noon time. Those are two key dates. Advice to folks waiting to see what's going to happen because you never know. Sherry, I should add one thing, which is after December 14th, in addition to filing lawsuits, of course, there is the option to go back and impeach Donald Trump once more and remove him from office. And there would be a lot of reasons to do that, which is, again, if he resists the peaceful transition of power after December 14th, I think that is an extreme abuse of office. In my view, it would be an impeachable offense. And if he were impeached for that, he would not be able to run again in 2024. Thank you so much to you, Dr. Claire Finkelstein, for coming on Flashpoint. This has been a very interesting and informative conversation. Thanks for having me, Sherry. Next up, Pennsylvania suburban support for the Biden-Harris ticket did not translate down ballot. Democrats got killed down ballot. I mean, that's generally what happened. Impact of the burbs on state politics and what the Democrats got right and wrong. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family. If you like what you hear, 
Why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras? One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more, please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. This is Flashpoint and I'm Cherry Gregg. The newsmaker is suburban voters. Pennsylvania's burbs came out for the Biden-Harris ticket, but the support at the top of the ticket did not translate down ballot. In fact, the GOP held onto its majority in the state legislature and flipped a couple of statewide seats as well. So what's the deal and the impact? Here to discuss this Flashpoint is Jamie Parapato, executive director of Turn. PA Blue, a group that she co-founded back in 2017. Jamie, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. So first off, I mean, we finally, it took it took several days to get uh, the final call. Joe Biden is the president-elect. Your reaction to the outcome nationally and in Pennsylvania? Nationally, I think, you know, we're all in a better place. I feel like, you know, people are just excited to move forward and hoping for a new direction. And that's the best result we could have had. That's what we needed. Um, It was a lot closer than we thought, than we had hoped. I think a lot of people um, had hoped that we'd uh, see, I don't know, a bit more humanity in our country, a bit more people rejecting Donald Trump and everything that he stood for. And I think what this election showed is really how uh, far apart this country is, how divided. Uh, you know, one of the things I think we heard the most was people saying, I can't believe how many people voted for him. It's up to what, 74 million? I know. Uh, votes, I mean, that's something. Uh, President Donald Trump at this point. And so this dig in a little bit here in Pennsylvania, you have been working for several years. And when we spoke days before the election, you felt very strongly uh, that you guys had a chance to flip the house. Uh, what were some of the wins and losses that you saw here in Pennsylvania? Um, Democrats got killed down ballot. I mean, that's generally what happened. The lower you went, the worse it was for us. Um, we managed to hold on to all our congressional seats in Pennsylvania. I think one of the things that's pretty interesting, it's, it's not just Pennsylvania, it's across the country. Incumbents held on to their seats for the most part in both parties. I think that looking at the results and there were a lot of Republicans who had to switch over to vote against uh, Trump but that didn't necessarily mean they were voting for Democrats down ticket. So I think we're going to see a lot of undervotes, which means people who just came in and voted for the president and nothing else. And you're going to see, you know, a ton of ticket splitting. I mean, we saw that with uh, the row officers too. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why Republicans in Pennsylvania, first of all, agreed uh, to, to, uh, you know, mail-in balloting (laughs) so that they wouldn't have the, you know, straight party vote. Uh, they, they wanted to avoid that. And this kind of helped them in, in, in that regard. And so what do you think was missing here in the Democratic messaging that prevented folks from, you know, from that win from the top of the ticket to, to, to spread down? I don't know if it was such an issue of messaging. I mean, this election was about one thing and one thing only, which was Donald Trump. Um, You know, after this is over, talking to our state legislative candidates, I was like, how much time did you spend talking to voters about your district and your issues versus Donald Trump? 
it was always about Trump and he was always managed to steal the new, the news cycle. You know, another issue we had was canvassing, you know, we are famous for knocking doors and talking to voters and we didn't have that face to face contact because of safety reasons, even though that hurt us, I think it was the right thing to do. And, you know, that's, that's what we do. But, um, you know, I think there were a lot of factors. And I think one of the things that was the most surprising about it was Republican turnout. Mm. Everybody voted. So this time around, uh, just based on the numbers still, they're not finalized, but we had about 66% turnout in Pennsylvania, over 60% in 2016. So everybody voted and Republicans turned out in droves. Some of them vote for um, Trump, but a lot of them obviously had to vote for Biden as well. And when you have these gerrymandered districts, if you maximize turnout on both sides, the math just doesn't add up. Like we can never get enough votes to get over them if both of us have record-breaking turnout. We usually went on a turnout game. We're better at turning out voters. We're better at getting people to switch the ticket. And this time, I think you had a lot of Republican voters who came out, voted you know, against Donald Trump or for Donald Trump and stuck with their party. GOP was able to even flip a couple of statewide seats as well. Um, what, what Was it messaging or was it just, you mentioned re- Republican turnout. How were they able to separate themselves from President Trump when usually, you know, you kind of hit your wagon to the president. If people were willing to give Biden their vote, they were going to hold tight onto these Republicans, like down ticket, like they weren't going to split their votes. People were holding on to what was comfortable, what was known. I think because there's so much uncertainty in these purple seats that we're trying to flip, there's nuance. You know, they don't always know, the voters don't always know about their voting record, but they know how these guys help um as constituent services, helping get potholes fixed or get your unemployment. So I think people, if you just look nationwide, that's why incumbents stayed. Nobody, the devil, you know, you know, they're going to get rid of Donald Trump and nobody really trusts either side right now, I think. So I think people were kind of balancing the ticket to just kind of stay with something comfortable because I think that Americans are craving some sort of stability, you know, and I think some of the messaging, like they always hammer Democrats on socialists and some of them being socialists and things like that. And some of the candidates that they, you know, attack for that, it's ridiculous. Like they are as far from socialist as you could get. But, um, you know, I think it's a resounding message of fear. I mean, the Fox news version of everything we do or how they twist it into something fearful and something to be afraid of. And, People are afraid of a lot of things right now. They should be. Um, And and I think that, you know, fear and Trump is what motivated this election. Yeah. And Mark Harris, a GOP strategist in the Pittsburgh area, he told the Philadelphia Inquirer, it's pretty clear that the Republican message on the economy, on police funding worked. Uh, The far left in their party, which is increasingly ascendant, has a political message that is just toxic to Democrats and suburban communities. What is your response to that? Well, I don't think it's the message because the message is, um, you know, our basic human rights and civil liberties and civil rights. But it's a matter of how the, you know, you put the Fox News lens over, uh, you know, the work we're trying to do with, um, you know, black people getting killed by police with all this racial disparity and all this stuff going on. You know, they take the worst, they take a, a soundbite and twist it in a way that makes it scary and unpalatable, you know, and activist messaging like around defund the police activists jobs is to make as much noise as possible to bring attention to the issues they're trying to you know make bring about change and you know defund the police is a very polarizing phrase but the concept underneath it is not 
So that's what I think that they're excellent at doing, especially Fox News, especially in this culture of fear, is taking an idea and turning it into something unrecognizable and using fear to project it out in a way, you know, uh, with the voting for Trump, I can't say what this country thinks anymore, but, you know, defund the police, you know, has a certain reaction versus, um, you know, reprioritize resources or something like that. And, but underlying it, you know, things can't happen the way they're happening. You know, and we saw that with George Floyd, like people aren't going to tolerate it. Um, you know, and I don't know if you could ever out message Trump. Like at this point, I remember the first weekend we were out canvassing. We, you know, we, we went out, Biden's campaign was out and that's when he got COVID. So every door we went to, we're talking about, is the president going to die of COVID? You know, is Chris Christie going to die of COVID? So it's crazy. It was just a crazy way of instilling fear in people and making them more afraid than they already were, preying off the fear and uncertainty that everybody's experiencing right now. President Donald Trump is very good at messaging and he targeted uh, the suburbs. But what do you think folks got wrong about the suburbs and what did they get right? Well, I mean, the suburbs really killed Donald Trump. That was that was one of the things, Um, you know, there were 1.5 million votes in the burbs, which was 173,000 over 2016. Um, He had 59 percent of the vote in um, in the burbs, and that was 55 percent for Hillary. So um, his numbers were like a 20 percent increase over Hillary's numbers. I think that. you know, a lot of the polling I saw nationally and things where there's an education line, you know, Trump, you know, college educated white voters were trending away from Trump and, um, you know, non-college educated voters were trending towards him. So, you know, we had a 20% increase in the Philly burbs and a 17% increase in the Pittsburgh suburbs. So, um, you know, our voters were turning out in the suburbs considerably against Donald Trump. Um, you know, and he, they did a lot, given the GOP credit, they did a lot of voter registration in rural areas to try to boost their Trump turnout. And it looks like they succeeded in doing that. Uh, not nearly enough because they're, you know, we don't have turnout numbers yet. It's still so early. We don't even have a certified result, but we don't know the breakdown by party yet. But, um, you know, the trend in the suburbs is overwhelmingly in favor of Biden. And so people got, got it right that the, the, I guess that the suburbs are more diverse than people thought in thought and, 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 and race and, and, and um, um, I guess feelings on some of these key issues um, that had been, you know, front of mind, but what they did get, you know, but, but people were also afraid, as you mentioned. Yeah, there's so much uncertainty, you know, you don't really know what's happening week to week. And, um, you know, it's, it's a really difficult position to be in for people and nobody wants it. Like nobody make any sudden moves. Like nobody wants anything crazy happening. They're done with crazy. That's what they've told us in this country. They've had enough of this chaos. And I think by keeping everything the way it is, is, is basically America's way of trying to stabilize things. Um, you know, and we'll see how, you know, basically now we have the chance to govern it's, it's, I think, you know, and, and work for the people. I think that we'll see if the Democrats can earn their votes or not. This is, once we get rid of that carnival barker, we can have, you know, more productive discussions about issues that matter to people. And as you move forward, as Turn PA Blue moves forward, can you even think about what the next steps are at this point? Or are you just trying to just take a breath? Um, I think we've ar- we already know what the next steps are. I mean, they were already set forth before this election, which is, um, you know, 2021. We have, um, you know, we have a lot of work to do in the municipal or county level. Like this race was won 
on the margins. So, you know, if you look at places where we, you know, we may lose, but we cut the margins. Like for example, Luzerne, we lost by 14 points, but that was a six point improvement over 2016. Um, Erie, Trump won it by two points in 2016 and Biden won it by one. So it's kind of working on these margins and, and that's what we do. We work in municipalities and counties where we need to either lose by less or we can flip it. So that's the work that we do. And I think one of the other things that's important to note about the suburbs is in 2018, we flipped control of all the collar counties to Democrats. So they're under Democratic control, Montgomery County, Delaware, Bucks, Chester, and obviously Philly. And having Democratic boards of elections made a huge difference in the accessibility of voting and vote by mail and the way the outreach was. I mean, I, th I can't remember the final number. Delco may have had 32 drop boxes. For example, Dauphin County, because we, we had a really hard time in South Central PA, Dauphin County, Republican controlled, I think they might have had two. So if you have Republicans controlling the county board of elections, they have a vessel to suppress votes and to decrease turnout. And, you know, we saw that, you know, we struggled in South Central PA, and that's because that's all under Republican control, all those counties. And they did their very best to make sure that these votes um, to undermine the um, vote by mail program. Cumberland County said they weren't going to start counting their votes till the next day. They were doing their very best to try to create confusion around voting. And it succeeded in that area because the turnout was just not what we'd hoped, nor was the mail-in as high as it was in the other suburbs. Yeah. And now you have these lawsuits um, that are very likely, we, we don't know what's going to happen, but you know, if it follows the trend in other states, they'll be thrown out. And, uh, you know, and so you're going to be looking to 2021. Uh, yep. And how are you going to re-energize yourself? Uh, you know, people are really, I'm, I'm energized by the volunteers because like, I'm tired. I, and I have all these emails, like, I want to do this for Georgia. What can we do? Can you have, when can we start registering voters? Like people aren't tired. Like they're ready. I don't understand how they're not tired. Maybe it's anxiety, but people want to work. Like we are trying to push out some good opportunities to support grassroots organizations in Georgia. Not everybody needs to go to Georgia and reinvent the wheel. They know what they're doing on the ground. People are, yeah, people are just energized. They want more. In 2022, we're going to have new lines. And, you know, if we have fair lines, like I, I think that's one of the problems we had with with record-breaking Republican turnout, um, the gerrymander is apparent. You see the damage that it does. Like you max out number-wise, we can increase we can increase twenty percent, and you still hit a ceiling. We hit a big red wall because you just can't get over the numbers. That's what the district was drawn to do: is protect the protect the Republican incumbent, and that's that's what happened. So, Jamie, any final word? I mean, stay tuned. We still have a battle ahead of us. We have a lot of things we need to get done in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, ever the optimist, we just had two new leaders appointed women for the first time. Joanna McClinton is a, a first African-American and first woman minority leader. And she's amazing. So that's something to look forward to. And, you know, the Senate, you know, has a now a woman in charge of the Senate, Kim Ward, and she's a Republican. But, you know, I always put my faith in women. Maybe we can get stuff done for the people. Thank you so much to Jane Pato. Next up, they do acts of kindness just cause. We wanted to look at people that were being looked over, left behind, and not thought of. An effort to give back for the Thanksgiving holiday. We'll be right back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you're a caregiver and 
feel uncertain about where you're working now? Call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the radio.com app, Apple podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now we here at KYW, we are all about community. And with the Thanksgiving season approaching, one local foundation has a plan to give back to those in need. Here to talk about their Thanksgiving basket drive is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, founder of the Just Cause Foundation, Antoine Wallace. Hello, how you doing? So for folks who've never heard of Just Cause, Foundation, what is it? So Just Cause Foundation was created to provide viable socioeconomic uh, solutions to socioeconomic issues in the Black community across the country. I'm a traveling healthcare consultant, so I go to different cities every month, and we try to put on events in all of these cities that we go to. We buy groceries, we feed the homeless, we put together book bag drives, and now we're coming to Philly to uh, provide food for people for Thanksgiving. Wonderful. And so, you know, Thanksgiving is a time of the year when we eat a lot. We've been in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, Food insecurity is at a high right now. Um, Why did you decide to to do this? When we started to lock down, I noticed that, you know, your everyday family started going more and more to food pantries. So the people that we would normally look over, i.e. homeless people, I, I felt like they would need more if you know the resources that they would normally use would be used by everyday people. So we started cooking food for the homeless and the, the theme was just, you know, we're all in need. Through my travels, we decided to start, you know, try to focus on the black community. Because once again, we wanted to look at people that were being looked over, uh, left behind and not thought of. And so often our community gets forgotten when it comes to funds and the allocation of those funds and support in general. Yeah. And so um and so now you're going to do a Thanksgiving basket drive. Tell me how it's going to work. So we are we have a partnership with the the school in Philadelphia and they're going to allow us to use their gym to pack these baskets with food and uh supplies for Thanksgiving, uh turkeys, um um, you know, uh, stuffing, cranberry, cranberry sauce, canned goods, you know, just the, the essentials is that we can assist people into, you know, that may be going through a hard time right now to put some food on their table for Thanksgiving. So you're going to have all the, the, the fixings in these baskets and who are you going to give them to? So we're opening it up to the community. Uh, the, the, uh, the school is in Northwest Philadelphia. It's called Mastery Charter Prep Elementary. We're going to be open from uh, 12 to 4 p.m. Our volunteers will be there from 9 a.m. packing all the baskets, getting them ready. And we want to provide a safe and COVID-conscious environment. Uh, We'll pack the baskets and bring them out to people. We don't want to, you know, have too many crowds. We still want everyone to be safe because we want people to enjoy the holidays in a safe manner. And so tell me a little bit about you and what motivated you to uh, start this organization and do this type of work. I'm from Queens, New York, uh, born and raised. I went to Lincoln University, which is about an hour away from Philly. 
And I was a part of an organization called People Stand United, and we did community service on campus all the time. That was, you know, our core function as a as an organization. Ikenna, who who you saw on Twitter, he he's actually a member of that organization as well. So we we try to find ways to, you know, just inject ourselves in the communities that we're a part of and try to, you know find small ways to make things better. What are you hoping when people open these baskets and, and start preparing for Thanksgiving that they take from this, this gift that you all will be giving them? Honestly, my, my whole hope for Just Cause is to inspire people to pay it forward. Uh, I've been through so many things in my life that if, you know, if I didn't have someone helping me and supporting me and pushing me and going out their way, I wouldn't be here today. So just the spirit of, you know, just, help your fellow man, you know, and it, it would go so far. It would go so far. Yeah. And so how can people support you? Are you still accepting donations? What's the deal? We are. Uh, we're accepting donations via Cash App to the uh, Just Cause Foundation. Uh, that's exactly how it sounds, is how it's spelled. Our website is thejustcausefoundation.org. We're also Just Cause Foundation on Instagram where you can see the stories and you know past events that we've done. When is all this going down? We're actually doing the drive on Wednesday, November 25th. And every day, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., you can make canned good drop-offs and donations at the Mastery Charter Prep Elementary School. Wonderful. And so people can just drop off, you know, money. They can drop off uh, donations of food. Uh, is there anything in particular that you all need? Non-perishables. Non-perishables. We're working on trying to get uh, turkeys from a, a grocery store now, but any non-perishables, uh, dried milk, uh, canned goods, those things will go a long way into filling those baskets. And so, Wallace, any final words to our audience um, as we go towards Thanksgiving? Yes, I just uh, want to remind people to stay safe and just know that there are people out there that may not know you, that may not have seen you, but you know, we're a community, whether we live in Philly together or if we're around the world, Black people, we need each other, we love each other. And like I said, if I can pay it forward, you can too. Wonderful. So thank you so much to Antoine Wallace. Check him out at justcausefoundation.org. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. That's it for Flashpoint. And since we always wrap with a quote, here's one from ethicist Reinhold Niebuhr. Man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. This show was produced by Ariane Fulcher and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Until next week, thanks for listening.